thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we face whilst working 24-7. Today, I have a special guest on the show who is going to talk to us all about gut health, probiotics and sleep, which are three inherently important areas of our health and well-being, particularly for those who are running on little sleep, such as those who work 24-7. Dr. Dason Horilek is a naturopath, herbalist and nutritionist with over 17 years of clinical experience and is considered one of the leading experts in the treatment of gastrointestinal conditions using natural medicine. Jason's passion for gastrointestinal health, the gastrointestinal microbiota and probiotics was ignited during the final year of his naturopathic training where he then went on to complete his honours and PhD degrees in the areas of gastrointestinal microbiota, irritable bowel syndrome, along with the clinical applications of pre and probiotics. So to talk to us more about gut health, probiotics and sleep, I'd like to give a warm, healthy shift worker a welcome to Jason. Thank you, Audra. It's very nice to be here. And it's always nice to have a chance to to speak about all things gut and, and microbiota. So thanks for the invite. Yeah, well, you're definitely uh, the guru on this topic. So, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really good. Thank you for uh, joining me today, Jason. I mean, it's it's a, a privilege to have you on the show. Now, we first met in person, uh, be it very very briefly at Cindy O'Meara's nutrition seminar seminar up here in Brisbane. But I was uh, really first introduced to your work when I was still at uni, myself studying nutritional medicine. And one of my lecturers, and I'll give her a little bit of a shout out. Um, is Tess Dingle. Now, she introduced me to an online resource that you created called Probiotic Advisor, and I'll let you obviously share more about this fantastic resource shortly. But to kick off the interview, Jason, I'd love for our listeners to learn more about you uh, and what sets you on the path to be so fascinated with gut health. It's an interesting question, and it's not what most people assume that I had my own sort of gut issues. And um, oh, okay. the guts, my gut is actually good. <laughs> it's my, it's my <laughs> Um, uh, lifelong asthma, hay fever, sort of things from you know that allowed such a thing to develop. But um, yes, yeah, so actually, people make sorry, you're the that sound just dropped out a little bit. Then sorry, I missed out what that what you actually said. Then so it's not your gut; it's asthma, is it? Well, it's yeah, it's essentially weak lungs. <laughs> it's my oh, area. That's okay. my area of weakness and, and asthma. You're right, and that's been my sort of health challenge for 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 my lifetime. Um, it was interesting. It was essentially a, a lecture provided by who would later turn out to be my PhD supervisor, Stephen Myers, talking about dysbiosis. And this was back in 99. Um, so the area was certainly um, beginning to, to grow at that point. And it was an, uh, certainly from a naturopathic perspective and, you know, people who practice nutritional medicine and naturopathic medicine, the gut and the gut mic- microflora, as it was called back then, was, was still a pivotal part of, of how we we thought about patients and, and particularly people with gut issues like irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease. We always thought, okay, how do we shift the gut ecosystem? Um, so, you know, it wasn't actually new from that perspective um, for, for, for people within those fields, um, but it's really appeal um, and interest in it that it does now such a topic but Stephen's mm-hmm. lecture was enough to inspire me to go I want to learn more about this I want to to look at what the evidence is showing and back then this is going back you know essentially 18 years is when I started my my journey in this area which makes me feel a bit old <laughs> <laughs> 
it was 18 years ago. And at that point, I could read every single paper that was published on the microbiota or every single trial on probiotics or prebiotics that was published every year. Because my, my job as an, as an honors and PhD student was, you know, delving into the research and, you know, writing my, you know, the literature review and then designing clinical studies around, around what the literature was actually finding. So it was a pleasurable time that I had to just spend a number of years just in that, that particular area. But you never would have guessed at that point that it was going to grow to, to where it's at now, where we're having, you know, mainstream television shows on SBS and ABC are talking about the importance of the gut microbiota. You know, 18 years ago, I would not have, have thought that. And essentially, it's, it's that the, the, the wider acceptance of the importance of the microbiota has essentially come due to changes in technology. Um, and in the early 2000s, we were able to to change how we looked at gut bacteria from the old style culturing, where we sort of take take fecal samples and put them into you know petri dishes and see what would grow, to using bits of DNA, um, and that opened up a whole new world. And we went from having just you know a handful of species or a couple of handfuls that we grow well um, in petri dishes to to realizing that listen, there's a thousand different species that are present in our gut, and most of them we didn't even know existed because of the old technology that we used. So that's what's sort of driven the, the, the greater interest and the huge amount of research that's now being published on the microbiota changes in technology. And no doubt there's way more research articles uh, available to read than what you were reading back in the early 90s. Yes. Now, <laughs> I think you could spend all day, every day and, and not read you know, probably even a quarter of the papers that are published yeah. now in the microbiota, probiotics, and prebiotics, the area is, is booming. You can focus on a specific area for a time and go, okay, now we're talking about the microbiota and Alzheimer's disease. You know, and yeah. that was not something, that, but now it's like, ah, no, actually, we, we now know that there's a, there's a pivotal role of the microbiota in Alzheimer's disease. Mm, yeah, it's fascinating. Type 2 diabetes. Yeah, and the more we look, the more connections we actually see between the microbiota and Alzheimer's Starting time to be someone who's 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 delved into the area, um, because you now know that not only can the changes we make in the microbiota alter gut conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, but actually everything from depression, anxiety, cardiovascular disease risk, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, and things like Alzheimer's disease. So it's and those are just a handful of things. There's a, there's a lot more that's that's currently being researched. So by altering the function of the gut and gut microbiota, there's now a whole bunch of consequences that that occur, both good and bad, depending on how we alter that ecosystem. Yeah, well, I guess that leads me to my my next question because, you know, obviously, why, you know, a, a, you know, a good place to start is by asking you like, why should we as a population be so concerned about our gut health? You know, in other words, you know, why should we be placing so much focus on taking care of it? Is probably from exactly what you just mentioned with all these chronic diseases. Yes, yeah, and and I think I used to have a lecture where I talked about the, the microbiota being the sort of forgotten, uncared for organ in the yeah. human body, and I think that's actually changing now. And I need to yeah. like this, where it's becoming recognised how how important and how integral it is. You know, you know, you know, twenty twenty plus years ago, we we knew it was important for immune system function, yeah. um, we knew it was important for. Um, motility, so how your your gut function in terms of moving things too quickly or move, move too slowly, and we did some preliminary research um, on on usually using animal models, where we, we essentially use hardcore antibiotics to to wipe out all their gut bacteria, put them into a sterile environment, 
give them sterile food and observe what happened, essentially what would happen to animals when we got rid of their gut microbiota. And from, from an immune perspective, we worked out that their, their immune system suffered dramatically from that process. And the, the thymus gland and the spleen actually shrank. Um, the ability of, of white cells to actually, you know, deal with invading pathogens decreased dramatically. And the number of, um, of a particular antibody producing cell in the gut secretory IgA producing cells decreased by 90% just by eradicating gut bacteria. And and they could fix all that by essentially introducing some poo <laughs> back <laughs> to the ecosystem and all those things. The, the, the spleen grew, the thymus grew, and the ability of white blood cells to function properly went back to normal. So so that, that research was happening in the 60s and 70s. So, so some aspects of, of the importance of the gut microbiota we knew back then. Um, but I suppose there's some other aspects that, that, are, that are beyond that now. So even back then, we talked about, you know, the, the microbiota being important for n- nutritional status, but we now know it's actually uh, how important a role that it plays because your your gut microbiota, if fed and nurtured well, um, can produce vitamins B1, B2, B3, um, B6, folate in, in considerable amount, amount. And we also have um, absorption pathways through our colon cells to absorb the, the B vitamins that are produced by our microbiota and and that's relatively new research too that these these sort of absorption pathways weren't all um defined until relatively recently um other things like you know we always tell people to eat more you know things like blueberries and raspberries and strawberries and and you know pomegranates to get this sort of you know healthy dark polyphenols in those mm-hmm. in those foods because of their antioxidant and their sort of putative anti-cancer properties but few of us know that that 90 to 95 percent of those polyphenols is you know blue colors that we get in blueberries are not absorbed in that form they actually reach the colon our large intestine, where our microbiota actually converts them into compounds we can absorb and get the benefit from. And, you know, so so essentially, if we have alterations in that ecosystem, we don't get the benefit of those, those you know, health-promoting health anti-cancer compounds um, to the same degree because we're not absorbing those compounds. They'll essentially get, you know, go past straight up with, with the feces rather than being absorbed. And and we now know that the microbiota is important as the microbiota organ is extremely important for things like weight management, um, blood glucose control, insulin sensitivity, and, and even mood. Um, and one of the conferences I, I spoke at um, a couple months ago was a lecture on the depression, um, the role, well, sorry, the role of the microbiota in, in, in depression and, and mood management. And I think, there, again, that's one of those areas that's really burgeoning as, as well as the role of the microbiota in obesity because both conditions like obesity and um, Metabolic syndrome and depression are so widespread in Western nations, um, and we now know there's a good reason why, because mm. the Western lifestyle, the Western diet causes the shifts in the ecosystem, and as I think we'll get on to later on, intestinal integrity or permeability, which then is a risk factor for development of those typical Western diseases. Mm, yeah, it's, it's huge, isn't it? I mean, you, you mentioned before that uh, you, know, you knew a lot about um, how it impacts on the immune system and that back in the 60s. But the, the scientists probably did, but not so much the general public. And I yes. guess the beauty of it today now, you know, we've got the internet and um, a lot of research articles are certainly more uh, available for the general population that this stuff is really starting to explode because of the way that it can be distributed amongst the world as well. So with that, it's able to make that awareness 
Yes. Yeah, no, I agree, because yeah, there's only a few research scientists that <laughs> were talking about the importance of this organ yeah. back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, yeah. I'm sure it wasn't widespread, um, but that is, has shifted. And, and you're right, it's just the change in technology in terms of mass information sharing that's occurred in that time period, too. And and I think there's been a shift for in people's consciousness about taking a step further, but looking after their own health. That wasn't around so much, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, besides in you know small, small pockets, whereas now there's a greater proportion of people that actually are playing an active role in looking after their health. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> We've also, you know, obviously got that mixture, um, so a mixture of gut microbiome, which you were sort of touching on before, um, that being both good and bad or that pathogenic bacteria. But if, you know, there ever becomes in that imbalance, it can lead to things like SIBO or small intestinal bowel overgrowth, dysbiosis and irritable bowel syndrome. Would you mind sharing a little uh, more about this with our listeners? Yes. Yes. So... I'm just trying to think of the best place to start. Yeah, sorry, it's a big question that one, I suppose. Isn't it? <laughs> no, it is. It is, but it's like you know, you could you could go all the way back to to the original seeding of your your gut ecosystem, and you were seeded. You know, if you were born vaginally, um, you were essentially seeded mostly by your by your mum, and then if you were breastfed, you were you were can encourage um, the growth of certain microbes through the through um, compounds in breast milk called human milk oligosaccharides, um, as well as a whole bunch of uh, you know, hundreds of, of species of bacteria themselves that are actually found in breast milk. And so your your sort of ecosystem starts at that point. And some people would argue even even before birth, um, there's now evidence of of you know microbes transporting across the placenta into the to the infant even before the birth process. But the birth process does wow. seem to be extremely important for the initial seeding that actually happens. Mm-hmm. And then how fed over the next couple of years um, and, and whether it's damaged or not through antibiotic use, for example, can actually influence how it develops for the rest of its its your whole life, actually. It's a pretty important um, time window. And I think it, again, we're just that message is start, just starting to reach out there that, that what we do to that ecosystem and how we initially seed is vitally important for, the, for your health for the rest of your life. So we really need to keep those things in mind. Um, but yes, there's a, there's a number of factors that we're exposed to as, as Westerners mm. <laughs> that, that can actually impact um, our ecosystem in negative ways, uh, and that can be things from you know C-section birth to um, artificial feeds formula, um, as as in terms of things that can can change how it's initially seeded and how it actually grows and um, from from the outset. Um, but then there's antibiotics, and then the Western diet. In the Western diet, we tend to see or, or, or is characterized by the lack of fiber, higher amounts of, of processed foods that contain, you know, significant amounts of fat and processed carbohydrates. But it's the combination of, of higher fat, um, higher sugar, and, and low fiber. Not a good combination for yeah. for one's gut system. And, and sadly, most of the foods that we can buy, you know, that are all processed and packaged fit that quite well you know our taste buds quite like them <laughs> but they're just not good for anything else besides our taste buds um so and, and that thankfully message is getting out there a bit more too but it's the the, the impact on the gut microbiota i think it, it's absolutely huge from that and, and there's a few components of that one is is the low fiber intake essentially results in, in starvation of certain species um who are, who are fiber consumers um and if they're starved off for long enough they they those species do go extinct um there's some very fascinating research done by the sonnenbergs at stanford university that that's looked at that and that yeah certain enough period of time passes of starvation it makes sense that the species is going to die out and then you could introduce all the fiber that you want but the bugs that eat it 
we're, we're, we're gone. So there's no way of easily fixing that bar, bar fecal transplant, essentially is what their research showed. Um, but there's other aspects of, of, of a higher fat diet that actively shifts the ecosystem in a different way because there are some microbes in your gut which are actually called bile acid eaters. Um, and they, they thrive on a high-fat diet, and not because they directly eat the fat, but because they eat the bile that we produce when we eat the fat. <laughs> so wow. our amount of, Yeah, yeah wow. it's an interesting, interesting area because people tend to be so fixated on, on bacteria, only eat sugar, that's the only thing that matters, and it's like, yeah. no. It's not true. Some bacteria eat protein and a lot of sort of bugs that are that are, have a greater inflammatory or pathogenic potential or dis- possibility of causing disease essentially are bile acid eaters. So when we're eating a high fat diet, we're pumping out the bile, you know, because the amount of bile we produce is dependent on how much fat we're consuming. Um, so we eat more fat, we produce more bile. And there's bug microbes in your gut that essentially just eat the bile. So we're selectively feeding certain species on that sort of dietary approach and selectively starving other other species out. The, 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 sadly, the more beneficial ones are being starved and the more inflammatory species are being brought up in, pop, uh, in, in levels. And that causes a, a specific type of dysbiosis that we tend to see associated with um, a sort of Western diet and also the Western disease conditions too. I'd say that research has been pretty consistent with that. Gee, I hadn't heard about the bile eaters. Wow. Goodness. No, it ha- that hasn't made its way to the blogosphere so much. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, push, I'm getting that message out there because that research has come out from 2006 um, onwards. So okay. it, it is slowly getting there. Um, yeah, but again, wow. there's not that many clinicians who are aware of it and certainly not so many people who are blogging about it. But it's again, it's out there in research circles. So it's it will get there. And, and podcasts like this will help that message get out there because sometimes people assume the only thing that feeds microbes in your gut is, is sugar. Or, 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 or more pathogenic pro-inflammatory microbes is, is sugar, and that's not true. Yeah, and so obviously you're kind of referring to the unhealthy fats like your omega-6s and which come in, you know, a lot of those processed foods rather than… Yeah, yeah. even but even saturated fat, and, and the research has been pretty clear on this too, and okay. particularly things like like dairy fat in some research was, was particularly problematic because it, it's much more challenging to break down. Your body produces a different type of bile to deal with dairy fat, which was higher in sulfur. And it's these um, microbes that eat the bile actually eating the sulfur compounds. So they actually, you get a bloom of, of, of microbes like Bilophila and Desulfovibrio, which are path- problematic in, a, in two main ways. One of which they, they themselves belong to a group of bacteria called um, probacteria, uh, which means they, which are the gram-negative classing of, ba- of bacteria, and they contain a compound called endotoxin. Or lipopolysaccharide, of which I'm sure we'll talk yeah. more about later on. Um, but but on top of the fact that you're just increasing levels of endotoxin in your in your gut by changing the, the balance of the ecosystem, you are also when you when you essentially when you're consuming those foods, you increase the bile. Those those microbes are actually consuming the bile and producing hydrogen sulfide, which is a sort of toxic compound in higher concentrations yeah. for your gut cells and, and can actually worsen gut leakiness and worsen inflammation in the gut as well. Gee, wow. This is fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. It is. And you, and you can clearly see this when you do like really good um, up-to-date stool testing where you can actually assess for levels of those bacteria. Okay. You can yep. certainly see those those microbes actually go up in people who are eating that sort of um, a diet that's higher in, in, in fat uh, and particularly when combined with not enough fiber yeah the proof is in the pudding or should we say the poo in this case yes <laughs> yeah and so it's nice and get objective data around that, that yeah now. 
in yeah. terms of working with clinicians who are using the right tools. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, one of the reasons why I you know, wanted to invite you on the podcast, Jason, is you know, the majority of the patients that, that I deal with experience you know, gut issues to some degree um, in some way, shape or form, pardon the pun. But when I'm when I've been undertaking, you know, evidence-based research for my clients, you know, what I quickly discovered, and I was discovering this, you know, still while I was at uni, was that a lot of this may be due to the ongoing effects of circadian desynchronization, which, you know, for our listeners is really just a fancy way of describing a disruption to our natural sleep cycle. And this, of course, leads to inflammation, which is one of the drivers behind many health complaints that we're seeing today. Are you able to share with our listeners, you know, in more detail how this sleep deprivation actually um, leads to inflammation of our gastrointestinal tract because this is just like I don't think anyone knows about this and it's just what I'm trying to kind of let everyone be no, aware and, and of. I, and I think it's great <laughs> soapbox <laughs> to be up on and, to, and getting that message out there because you're right, it's not widely known and, and I think that's partly because the research has only been done in the last handful of years mm. looking at the, the, the impact of disruption to circadian rhythm on the microbiota, you know, and, and again, any research that was done pre 2000 would have been using old technology, which was in insensitive and couldn't actually pick up sure. su- subtle or even sometimes huge changes in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's only more, more recent research that, that where we've had the, the time and the right tools, sorry, to actually delve into that area. Um, and then it takes someone who's actually interested <laughs> to, to go, okay, we've now have this tool. Let's see. I'm curious the impact of circadian, yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. Well, that have on the microbiota because no one would have considered that mm. um, even eight or 10 years ago. But yeah, in the last, I think, four or five years, some people have. And it's not a huge amount of research that's there now, but I think the ma- the research that is there is certainly um, concerning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Probably say. good choice of words. Yep. Mm. Yep. And that, I mean, I think the research does tell us, and you know, you'd say that it's, it's still in the early days in terms of using animal models, but mm. um, I think it fits in well with the, the disease types that we tend to see in people with disrupted circadian rhythms. Yeah. <laughs> but but we know that that changing that circadian rhythm can actually disrupt intestinal permeability or intestinal integrity, um, and and in itself, but it also allows the gut to be more easily damaged. You know, like like alcohol, um, undoubtedly would actually worsen the the, the impact of, of non steroidal anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen that, that we know in itself can cause intestinal damage. But under the presence of, of that circadian rhythm disruption, we know the gut becomes more sensitive to disruptors. And and sadly, you know, alcohol is is, is widely used um, as as a relaxing tool mm. <laughs> as well as for other other purposes. But if your circadian rhythm is already out, then I think there'll be probably a lower dose of alcohol actually required to actually to to cause increased permeability um and again because you're more prone to having inflammation you might take more anti-inflammatory medications to help with that too so which means you're more likely to get gut damage from that um but but also means you're more likely to get the 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 gut integrity damage from even like high fat low fiber high sugar sort of food combinations too and and i think you'd You'd be right too, and you're seeing it your patients that you're, if you're, if you're working really long hours and a lot of disrupted hours, you tend to not necessarily look after yourself food wise as well as you know you could. Exactly. Um, which is your resulting yeah. eating some of those foods that you, if you know, if you're in different situations, you probably wouldn't. Um, but that actually will cause inflammation in the gut, and that allows essentially increased absorption of, of bacterial byproducts like endotoxin that I hinted at before, and certain bacterial, certain bacterial populations in your gut just 
endotoxin as just part of their makeup. It's not like they're releasing this toxin specifically anyway. It's just part of their, their cell. It's just part of them. Um, but when you have, you know, 2% of, 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 you know, something like proteobacteria in your gut versus 10%, you obviously get a lot more or five times as much endotoxin being present when you have higher amounts. Um, and your gut is really intact, good integrity. You don't let much of that endotoxin in. But when your gut is more leaky, you let more of that endotoxin in. And that causes body-wide inflammation it results in insulin resistance, uh, can damage the blood-brain barrier, causes brain inflammation, um, and a whole range of, of, of consequences we're just beginning to, to learn about now. So I think that's, that's a huge thing. So the fact that it can actually disrupt intestinal integrity and then essentially lead to endotoxin re le reaching it and leaking into the bloodstream, which then causes systemic inflammation, is majorly problematic. And there's also some other research suggesting that the ecosystem itself can be disrupted um, in terms of its composition by disruptions to your circadian rhythm by changing the late day, day night sort of cycle. And this was particularly evident in, in groups of mice that were eating a, a typical Western diet that was high in fat, high in processed carbs, low in fiber. And they had some pretty clear changes like lo lower amounts of lactobacilli. Um, and lower amounts of butyrate-producing bacteria and increases in levels of proteobacteria, which are very rich in pro-inflammatory endotoxin. And I think, again, that combination isn't good because there's a number of, of microbes in your gut that produce butyrate, and butyrate is a fantastic compound that actually helps heal what your gut when it's damaged. It can help decrease endotoxin absorption but also improved insulin sensitivity, uh, protects against neural cell death, protects against neural inflammation, um, and helps you know the, the sort of brain regrow and improve um, the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. So it's an amazing compound that, that many bugs in our gut are happy to produce for us if we feed them well and if we don't disrupt their populations by um, disrupting our daylight cycles, sadly. Yeah, my poor little shift workers. I mean, we, we often refer to the SAD diet, <clears throat> excuse me, SAD, standard yep. American or Australian diet, but I think I kind of have to reword one now to like the SSD, the tip, you know, the standard shift workers diet, which is pretty well much the same. And, yeah. you know, you're mentioning about alcohol. Again, I know yeah, so many that use that as a way to unwind after some pretty highly stressful um, yeah. uh you know, days at work because you know a lot of our in a lot of our shift workers also are in quite um, high stress jobs, and a lot of them are carers, yeah. so they're paramedics, nurses, doctors, and stuff. And even though I they know. do know that you know the alcohol is not great, it can be yeah for some people a way to unwind. But then that also can interrupt our uh, disrupt our REM cycles of sleep. That's a whole different kettle of fish again. I know it's 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 a pretty phenomenal thing that these people who are essentially you know <sighs> I can almost say like giving their lives for help, yeah, helping others and what these yeah. workers are um, and and yes we know about the short term aspects of of quality of life and they'll they'll know that but it's I think it, the research is now highlighting some longer term aspects of yeah. a longer term shift work which is is is, is detrimental and and I think we really need to be teasing a, a lot more um, of how we can best care for these people uh, long term because you know. The nurses are staying up all night looking after sick people in hospital. They're, they're, 
they're doing it to look after sick people. You know, they're, they're, it's it's yeah. And I think we have to make sure that they're supported um, as many ways possible to to maintain their health through that that process. And and I think of the coming few years, we'll be looking at at the Garcabata support as a, as a key component of that. That has been totally neglected, um, as well as I think the broader field of looking after that the the health of these populations has been neglected. Oh, well, that just is, brings music to my ears. It kind of almost gives me goosebumps to hear things like that, Jason, because, yeah, it's definitely one of the drivers behind what I'm trying to do. But, look, it's a fas- it is definitely fascinating, fascinating, and I think most people, you know, would be uh, or are blissfully aware that sleep deprivation, you know, is a form of, you know, physiological stress on our body, which, yeah. you know, as you just described, can have negative effects on our health and well-being. And there was, you know, that article um, published in the PLOS One journal, it might have been what you were just referring to before, you know, titled Disruption of the Circadian Clock in Mice Increases Intestinal Permeability and Promotes Alcohol-Induced Hepatic Pathology and Inflammation. And what really blew me away in that article was that, you know, the results from this study suggested that, you know, chronic environmental circadian disruption alone, so forget even, you know, the 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 poor diet and the alcohol you know is sufficient to increase intestinal permeability to levels comparable to those that occur as a consequence of chronic alcohol consumption now just yeah and obviously you know one of the mechanisms believed to be involved in this has to do with the tight junction protein uh, called occludin which is critical for the maintenance of intestinal um, barrier integrity in other words you know circadian organization or that disruption to the sleep wake cycle which is exactly what my beautiful shift workers you know uh, are continually you know at doing yeah um you know obviously that that having that beautiful normal sleep wake cycle appears to be absolutely critical for the maintenance of our intestinal barrier integrity <laughs> i mean uh, it's a, it's well. a very uh, important bit of research that uh, i think it's got nowhere near the um, <laughs> media attention that it, that, it, that it should have i hope um, it is now to, yeah hopefully so because um, yeah. i do think it's something that uh, yeah, it adds a whole new new area of, of concern for, for shift workers that are like, all right, well, that's another area that we need to be looking for how we can modify that. You know, can it can this this change that, you know, you can't necessarily change your your hours that you're working very easily many times. But can we alter the impact of those, those that shift in daylight cycle, day night cycle? Um mm-hmm. And particularly that aspect of its impact on the, the gut integrity. So I think there will be more research being published in the shorter to longer term that will help define tools we can use. But I think there's probably ideas that you and I have now about how we can actually Im- impact that. Yeah, yeah. If yeah, the more research, the better. I think it would be just yeah, I'd be chuffed to hear that to know that um, you know in Australia alone, like this podcast does go global, but in Australia alone, we've got one and a half million shift workers, and I think um, yeah, we, it's definitely there. We're kind of a bit of a neglected work. Yeah, it is huge, it's and huge. we're kind of a little bit of a neglected. We kind of get pushed into the too hard basket. So I think yeah, if we can have more of a focus on um, you know finding ways, you know shift work is not going to go away it's, it is required but if we can certainly find ways to help them um 
would be great and look obviously you know we've been talking about all the not <clears throat> excuse me not so good stuff um but so let's talk about some of the things that you know are going to help to improve their gut health despite working 24 7 uh, jason could you explain yes. you know what is the difference between prebiotics and probiotics which are you know one of the things we can implement into our dietary practice to help enhance our gut health because prebiotics which is um which are just as important if not more seems to be not getting as much attention as you know probiotics yes no i i I completely concur with that um (laughs) way of looking at the 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 current scenario um yeah for for whatever reason the the probiotic field is is certainly booming and and listen i love probiotics (laughs) i do use them heaps in my clinical practice and i've been in in this field for for long enough to have a, a huge amount of respect for their capacity to to work for a certain um underlying disease or, or health impairments. Um, but I think the area of, of prebiotics is, is very much neglected. Um, and I mean, not by necessarily in, in the research arena, but in terms of how it's used in clinical practice mm. by, by clinicians and whether, and yeah. they, they even acknowledge that they exist by the general public, whereas the general public will generally know probiotics, which we know are you know, live microorganisms, which when ingested produce a health effect. That's standard definition of probiotics. And I think if you asked 100 people randomly out there, most of them would have a come up with something pretty similar to that um, in terms of how they define what a probiotic is. But you ask them what a prebiotic is, most people don't know. And essentially, it's just been recently redefined as you know a selective substrate that through it, its, its selectivity of fermentation induces a health benefit. To, to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm now talking about, you know, skin-based prebiotics as well as vaginal prebiotics as well as gut prebiotics. And certainly most of the original research has been focused on gut um, and how we can, you know, use prebiotics to alter the ecosystem in a beneficial way. And the key thing about prebiotics is the selectivity of their fermentation. So there's only one or a handful of microorganisms in your in your gut ecosystem that actually have the right metabolic machinery to break down and consume that substance. So the way I like to explain this to patients is, you know, assuming you've got a a garden bed and you've got a number of weeds and you have a number of vegetables, imagine if you could sprinkle a fertilizer that only the vegetables could use and the weeds couldn't use. And and within a short period of time, the vegetables crowd out and, and essentially, you know, um, decrease the number of the, the weed growth that's actually there through competitive inhibition. And that's essentially what, what prebiotics do, is they selectively increase the population of certain bugs, microbes in the gut, which then produces health, health benefit. Mm, and examples of prebiotics, Jason? Yeah, the most well-characterized ones are, they all have long names, sadly, most of them <laughs> do, but fructo-oligosaccharides, galacto-oligosaccharides, and probably the third one with the most amount of research would be lactulose. Lactulose, the name is a bit shorter. Um, yeah, and all three of those have got a number of research studies showing their capacity to selectively change the ecosystem for the better in terms of increasing levels of, of microbes that, that have sort of more of an anti-inflammatory gut healing presence um, and decreasing levels of microbes that are associated with, you know, inflammation and, and gut damage. Mm, yes. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, what the majority of the general public are also not aware of is that, you know, various strains of, of, of probiotics, say, um, that, you know, can benefit particular types of condition which in itself is pretty amazing and given there's so much information and advertising out there about probiotics which i think 
um, you know, which I know you refer to on your website, Probiotic Advisor, as a probiotic information minefield. For someone who yep. may be listening to this podcast and they're just, you know, they're, say, taking a, a multi-strain probiotic, are they actually wasting their money? You know, could could be a good, you know, be a good reason to perhaps see a qualified health practitioner who's well-versed on that area? Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. Because I'd say that, that most of those, many of the so-called, you know, multi, high-potency multi-strain probiotics were essentially put together um, without much... <laughs> foresight or, or or thought of looking at the research there are there are a handful out there um that that they've actually been selected with care um looking at the research like okay let's grab this strain because it has this particular action this strain with this action this strain with that action which all work well for this, these sort of conditions and and put it together whereas most are just they, they all they're just bought from the same supplier and just thrown in there um without a great amount of research looking at the ingredient ratio etc but it probably requires taking a step back about what a strain is as well because I, I i hear you that that it's been talking about strains to australian practitioners for oh my god probably 15 years now i think and and i'd say that actually australian practitioners are actually far more aware of strains than places in, in, in canada and the u.s where i also also teach too um so that's good <laughs> the message yeah. is getting out but yeah. it's not known much by the general public even at this point. But I think the way of looking at this is, is similar to, to breeds of dogs. All dogs are the same species. You know, you've got a Chihuahua, you've got a German Shepherd, you've got an Irish Wolfhound. They, Despite the fact they look very different, they are close enough genetically to be considered the same species. So uh, I think in the same way that within a given species of bacteria – Lactobacillus acidophilus would be the one that most people would heard of. There are actually thousands of different strains. Some, um, and they can differ quite dramatically, but depending on what genes they have turned on or turned off. Um, so, so you can have that sort of breadth of, they don't necessarily change in the same way in terms of physically like you get with dogs, but you certainly can change in terms of how they, they have the capacity to produce their effects. Like some strains of Lactobacillus acidophilus will, will die in your stomach. Others will die in your small intestine. Others will survive in small bowel transit and actually attach to your 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 gut cells at least temporarily um, and, and enhance your immune response. Other strains will be able to kills off sort of I know pathogens or, or sort of you know disease causing microbes in your gut, whereas other strains won't be able to do that. So is actually in the supplement. You, you can't really tell what that strain does, and I think that's the key thing. And again, the dog analogy trying to round up, you know cows or sheep then you know use a, a red kelpie or a blue healer or something you know his dog that's what they do well if you're wanting a guard dog a chihuahua is not the best <laughs> choice for that you know a doberman would be a good choice for that um but if you're wanting a, a, a you know a, a companion for your dear old great aunt harriet then maybe a chihuahua would be the best dog whereas a you know doberman wouldn't be the best dog for that task so you know, we sort of know those things about dogs, but it, it, we need research on probiotic strains to essentially detail what they're good at and what they're not good at. And I think that's the key thing is there are certain strains that have got a lot number of help, helpful therapeutic actions, um, but then they're, 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 but they can still be completely useless in other areas. You know, I can give lactobacillus from Gnosis GG, great for pre preventing antibiotic associated side effects. It's got some research about protecting against development of eczema. Um, but doesn't protect against urinary tract infections. But lactobacillus mm -hmm. rhamnosus GR1 does protect against urinary tract infections. So even though they're the same species, 
just different strains within that species means they have different genes turned off or on, which actually changes their therapeutic effects potentially. Mm, yeah, it's, it's like opening a can of worms, isn't it? It just yeah goes on yes. and on and on. It definitely <laughs> is, and that's why I think you're you're right that if you if you really want to, if you're just going if you're just after something for for general health and don't necessarily have anything wrong, then I, personally I think you're better off just eating some fermented sauerkraut or kimchi that's raw and live because then you're going to get a number of 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 a multi-strain mixture of of microbes that may or may not have any therapeutic effect but at least you're getting other the food nature component too but i think you're better off choosing probiotics um with with more more foresight i suppose and choosing the right strain for the right task at hand and that will generally require i think speaking with the practitioner with, with with greater knowledge of probiotics to help choose the right one for what's going on with you because we know different probiotic strains have different actions and I think we need to shift how we think about probiotics to being a bit more like we think about using herbal medicines or pharmaceuticals that we take them for a specific health condition mm-hmm. because they have an action that helps you know so you're, you're taking an aspirin because it relieves a headache for example um you're not taking it because you've got an aspirin deficiency or we're taking <laughs> pepperin essential oil to help deal with gut uh-huh. spasm because it relieves has antispasmodic properties not because you're you're have a deficiency of pepperin essential oil it's a, it's the same shift required in thinking of probiotics that we're using finding the ones that have the right action to treat what's disordered in our system mm. all right well then capsules versus powder what about that as a question listen i think for most probiotics that we have access to now that they'll they've generally been selected because they do survive um well it's good probiotics i should say do survive transit to the stomach okay so they don't necessarily to be you know even with a special capsule anymore okay. um and I think that probably the main advantage to, to powders is obviously in, in different age groups like kids where capsules not a possibility, but also the capacity of the probiotic to alter the oral ecosystem. So if you're swallowing capsules whole, you're gonna, not going to alter your oral, you know, your mouth ecosystem. But if you're taking a powder, you've actually got the capacity to, to change the, the composition of your oral ecosystem. And, and that some probiotic strains have been used to decrease uh, dental carry dental cavity sort of um, frequency um, and essentially oh. if you swallow those as capsules it's not going to do that but if you take it as a powder or in a food form like a yogurt if that's strain is available in yogurt form then yes you can actually have that action because the microbes are actually competing with um, or the probiotic that you just ingested are competing with the indigenous micro populations in your your mouth and, and changing the, the dynamics mm. wow Wow, wow. All right, one last question before I wrap up. Um, so the timing of, you know, of taking these probiotics, I don't think that's really ever sort of talked about and, and for shift workers the ramifications can be quite huge because we don't kind of do things the same way, same time as everyone else. Um, yeah, because we don't get up at the same time each day yeah. nor do we go to bed at the same time each night. So is there a good time for them to be taking their probiotics, uh, also their products, which is going to help to enhance their effectiveness in other words give them more bang for their buck well when it comes to probiotics i'd say that the research hasn't been particularly um systematic in terms of trying to work out the best time of day to actually ingest them which is probably good for shift workers (laughs) so i can't say we can say with any any evidence-based um recommendation in terms of time of day but i can say the research is clear that you get better bacterial survival so better probiotic survival if you take the probiotic with or immediately following a meal so I think that's the key thing. So, and particularly a bigger meal. So, you're better off having it whatever your, your biggest meal of the day is. Have the probiotic with that. Uh, okay. You actually get better survival of the microbes through through a bigger meal because the pH in your stomach is essentially weaker when you've got a bigger meal in there versus when it's empty, where your pH is quite strong. 
okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's quite good advice. Yeah. Well, sounds like I'm giving you perhaps a bit more um, research to do, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is it is interesting. You start looking at this, um, and it's like, wow, there actually is a fair bit of research that we still need to do. Both broadly speaking, of probiotics in terms of time of day, I, I hear that, but also. <laughs> In terms of this, you know, the impact of, of the disruption of circadian rhythm, and and what what tools could best be used, because I think again, the, thankfully, our research teams looking at this, um, but sadly, probably not as many as there should be, given the the number of shift workers there are, not even Australia wide, but worldwide, that yeah. actually needs extra help. But we'll probably be, you know, working on different probiotics that that'll be more useful than others and, and the different prebiotics and, and certainly different dietary approaches. And I think one of the key things we can do is is using prebiotics and fiber. You know, taking, making sure that even if your your intake of food is not necessarily ideal, but if you take a couple of teaspoons of psyllium husks or something with <laughs> that that mm. bad meal, <laughs> mm. that's pretty easy. You can do on the side yeah. will actually help mitigate some of the damage that would otherwise be occurring. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great advice. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing the research as it as it comes about. And look, this has been so incredibly informative, Jason. You are such a wealth of knowledge in this area. I could speak to you for hours. And yeah, we not- probably could. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Part two and part three of the podcast. Um, But, you know, you're certainly helping so many people, along with myself as a practitioner, because obviously, you know, what you do as a lecturer, you know, and you go around the world traveling to help spread, you know, the knowledge. um, It's it's, it's certainly helping to raise some much needed awareness on gut health by providing some insight into how we can support um, our gut health. But um, where can people find you to learn more about your research and what you're doing, Jason? Um. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the probiotic advisor is a good good place to start. Um, I mean, it's mostly designed as a resource for practitioners. So, yeah. yeah. So there is some some information on there in terms of some free free lectures information that I think gives a good breakdown of the basics of probiotics that you should know about choosing. But it is, it is targeted for practitioners too. But you know, those who are um, better health educated, with general public people, which which there's lots these days, will yeah. I'm sure will be able to, to make it through that content quite fine yep. but the, the most the, the the database itself is 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 geared mostly for practitioners um i'm trying to think <laughs> i suppose I, I do run workshops on, on on introducing people to the microbiome um so if you i suppose let me know because I'm, I'm hoping to to eventually go from being physical workshops to online sort of workshops um you know because i think it's an important thing and, and particularly for this population it could be a very important thing to see how impacted your your own ecosystem is by by this and then we go through you know um changes in diet and prebiotic tools etc we can do to help improve that ecosystem so perhaps keeping an ear out for that um and i suppose i do practice at at gould's natural medicine um and if if those workshops actually do come through they might come through there so they've they, we've got a, there's a newsletter there that if you sign up i'm just trying to think of ways of getting the message to you pretty yeah. simply yeah. <laughs> and that and that that that, that could work yes as okay well. that's great and so you're down in tasmania aren't you i am yeah. yeah and i do do tours but most of my my speaking engagements are for practitioners yeah i, I don't do many to date for the general public yeah. bar my my workshops yes yeah yeah no they sound great yep definitely and uh, yeah we definitely this so we can for anybody listening that wants to learn more about what you're doing, there's certainly a good start there. So, look, thank you so very much for joining me today, Jason. It's been an absolute delight to have you on the show, and I'm sure my listeners have learnt, you know, so much from you, just as you know I have as well. Ah, oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks again for the invitation. 
Well, that's it for another edition of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback and there are many ways you can do this via my Facebook page, The Healthy Shift Worker, through my website, healthyshiftworker.com, or you can visit The Wellness Couch at thewellnesscouch.com and leave a comment there. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to share it with other shift workers who you think may benefit, as this will help me to spread the Healthy Shift Worker message to shift workers and organisations all around the world. If you'd like access to more free resources, including my newsletter, just visit my website, healthyshiftworker.com and enter your name and email address. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Until next time, may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be, despite working 24-7. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.